0: Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Supplementary episode 1.11. So close, and yet so far. There is such a thing in biology called convergent evolution. That's when completely different species end up developing similar features as a means of adapting to their similar environments. Similar situations result in a similar response. That is how, when I was reading up for Season 2, I ran into two separate articles written by different people, yet both opening by informing me that there is such a thing in biology called convergent evolution. Both pieces were about games similar to some famous ones, developed around the same time or even earlier, and independently. It's actually pretty common. Past the nearly identical introductions, the two articles turned out to be very, very different. One was written by a researcher dedicated to exploring the obscure side of the medium, documenting his observations, presenting them with all the necessary explanations, and getting genuinely excited when a new piece of information made him reconsider earlier assumptions that's how science works. The other article was written by someone who thought that replacing every two-syllable word with a five-syllable one made them sound academic. No, it makes you sound like a high schooler padding a paper using a thesaurus. Also unreadable. On the whole, works of researchers maintaining museums, digging through archives and documenting old games and interviewing their creators are invaluable, since they refine mountains of primary sources into pure gold, and I always try to credit them whenever I refer to their material. Primary sources, like games, program code, manuals, rule books, developer notes, the press, are great, and I dip into those too when I can get my hands on them, but they take more time to process, and in case of games may require motor skills, or the right mindset for tough puzzles. I think most game researchers started doing it not because of a public call for more game studies, but out of personal interest. They wanted to learn how a certain kind of game changed over the years, or the full story of how some specific game was created, or what made a particular great man of the game industry so great. They wanted to understand their favourites they start in a cozy room with a shiny gift wrap box on the table in the middle, holding everything they want to know, and all they need to do is pull on a thread to start unwrapping it. But when they pull, the room around them warps, its walls unravel, and they see other rooms around, less cozy, unfamiliar, but all with a shiny gift wrap box on a table, Eventually, the gift they were pulling on does open, but it's no longer everything they want to know. What about these other gifts? And this knowledge they've found doesn't seem complete, doesn't quite explain everything. They need to leave the room, leave the comfort zone, and start opening other boxes to find what they're missing. And that's where reality hits. That the game they thought so special and original was just the lucky one out of several implementations of the same general idea. That the great man of the industry they've been looking up to is just a guy given too much credit for the work of others, an inflatable giant lifted by the shoulders of many. For some researchers, it's a major discovery, a big shock. For me, it's usually Tuesday. In my drive-by research across all kinds of games... I get used to watching people watch their heroes die. Because it's everywhere. It's something that should be expected. And then you see these researchers in different phases of coping. Well, not see, but when they write about their discoveries, they do put their fingers to the keyboard at different stages. Some are at acceptance. Yeah, that guy was a fraud. Sucks. But it turns out there were dozens of other creators coming up with great games, and we owe all of them recognition. Some are trying to bargain. Yeah, that guy didn't invent even half the concepts we credit him for, but uh, at least he was a good editor. We can give him that, right? And there's also full-blown denial. I've got all the evidence that the big game-changing thing this great man has supposedly invented was stolen from someone else, but I'm going to trust the great man when he says he had the idea earlier, because I trust him. He's so trustworthy. I grew up with his games, I collect clippings of his wisdom. If I don't trust him, my entire world would shatter. Don't stay in denial for too long. The sooner your world shatters, the sooner you find a new and bigger one beyond it. All those other rooms. Unfortunately, not every answer can be found in existing research papers, and you may have to head down the less trolling paths, with primary sources as the only thing to show you the way. For example, accounts of various people in the industry. There are lots of interviews and memoirs out there. So far, for the 70s and early 80s period, there are three categories of interviewees. Programmers or engineers, the top management and activists. The first group is great for understanding how games and game hardware were made, what challenges had to be overcome, what the influences were, and the actual context of their work, not what we imagine it to be today. Because there are surprises, and strange design decisions may turn out reasonable once you discover what the original intent was. You may also learn new words or the original meaning of some terms there's a lot. At the same time, beware programmers making declarations about the overall state of the industry at the time. They have no idea. They are the people most surprised when an interviewer tells them they were the first to develop some game concept. Like, wow, really? They're not into historical research. The downside is that they often invent things that already exist. This group is focused on immediate problem solving. Their knowledge is deep but narrow, usually expanded only by working at several companies or chatting with colleagues. But it's never the whole big picture. That is, unless some engineers or programmers start their own business and move into management. Managers, unless they are former creative staff, tend to have little idea of what their people are doing in day-to-day operations, but they have a better understanding of the industry trends and how much it costs to follow them. They'll tell you a lot about why a certain game flopped and why a company failed, unless they happen to be running said company. Then you get a whole list of valid excuses, covering up careful, as if accidental, omissions. The third and by far the rarest category of interviewees are activists. The idea to offer computer access to the masses that appeared in the 60s was eagerly picked up by the 70s counterculture. And it shared John Kemeny's observation that the best way to draw people to computers were games. So there were characters out there for whom publishing the code of simple basic games was a part of the struggle against government and corporate tyranny or whatever. I wish there were more about this sticking it to the man by games crowd, but they did put a lot of their ideas in print and newsletters, so that helps too. Then there's the press, and by this I mean contemporary press from back when, not modern writings I'd put together with research work. General press can be surprisingly helpful with regard to major events, computer industry press like the InfoWorld magazine provides statistics and interesting coverage of the run-up to the video game crash, newsletters and zines of all kinds are precious for peeking into the more amateurish game development scene and it's not just the articles it's the ads too telling you what kind of products were on the market specialized video gaming press which does appear early tends to offer too much of the least valuable materials in my experience and that's game reviews and various top 10 lists And the worst reviews are ones written by authors unaware of the stuff the developers had played. Say, a 70s video game fan reviewing something created by a tabletop wargamer. In this case, the author doesn't have the vocabulary to describe what they're seeing, and they get caught up on the most mundane things that had been in wide use for years, but it's all new to the reviewer. But the effect is that when you're reading the review, you see a string of words connected into sentences, and no information. It could be helpful to take a look at something closer to the game's source, a design document or a manual. They are supposed to describe how the game works. Unfortunately, neither of these is like a board game rulebook. They don't explain everything in detail. Design documents are supposed to, but they're rare, not always written, and development can get complicated, so how they plan the game and how it works in the end may differ. The same goes for user manuals, with the added bonus that a manual can deliberately lie to the player for some dramatic effect. But there is something that would never lie to you, and that is the source code, which is available for a large number of games programmed in BASIC. I'm not exactly good at BASIC or programming in general, but I did have to read the code of one game for Season 2, since it turned out to be hugely influential, yet often overlooked. Some information about games can be found in fan-made content like guides or Let's Plays, but the quality of these is all over the place. Some are high effort on par with research papers, offering an exhaustive annotated account of a game, along with behind-the-scenes trivia. Others are nearly useless. A walkthrough outlining the sequence of actions that leads you to victory might not cover why you're doing any of it. I also remember a guide telling the reader to turn left on reaching a T-junction in a game, but when you play it, you see that left is the only way to go, and the path on the right terminates two steps from the junction in the collapsed tunnel, so it's not really a choice, as the text may lead you to believe. At the same time, well-commented tool-assisted speedruns exploring various glitches may give insight into how games actually work, how the virtual world around the player is put together, and how fragile the illusion is. Occasionally, and this is a big secret of mine, useful information can come from random conversations on the internet. Someone mentions a game in a particular context, maybe comparing it to the one you're researching, and it could be an old forum post from like a decade ago. You get a lead. You follow it. It might be of no use at all. It might take you to a curious little game, you look up the designer, and discover the whole body of their work, and go, it's amazing! It's a new side of the period I'm researching, and I didn't even know this person existed. Yeah, this method is kind of random, but if you're casting a wide enough net, you are going to catch something. You just don't know where. Wikipedia is not a source. I repeat, Wikipedia is not a source. The only useful parts of its pages are the links at the bottom leading you to potentially useful sources, and links between articles showing some connections between entities, people and events. As for the article text themselves... Well, there was that scandal when it turned out that most of the Scottish Wikipedia was written by an American teenager who retyped English articles with a fake Scottish accent. That's useful to keep in mind when you open any wiki page. I've seen articles on some game-related subjects that lied to me or spun facts in very strange ways. Also, remember that Wikipedia editing policies prefer secondary sources to primary ones. So someone interpreting a document ranks higher than the document itself. It seems reasonable until you run into an obscure topic where the only published interpretation is questionable at best. When it comes to game history in particular, there's the perfect example of the Wikipedia article on the game called Adventure, published by a company called Atari I'll be mentioning a lot in Season 2. For a few decades it was believed that Adventure had been released in 1979, because that's how its creator remembered it. He handed the finished game in that year, and a few months later people started asking him about it. But coming back to the value of interviews I talked about earlier, our memory is not as reliable as we'd like to think, especially decades after the events. Researchers kept looking for some hard evidence of the game's release date, a review or a store catalogue listing, and they just could not find anything from 79. Either there was a worldwide conspiracy to ignore it, or it didn't release until the summer of 1980, when it did appear in retail and started to see press coverage. So about 10 years ago, someone suggested an improvement to the wiki article. It got rejected, because the editor lauding over that entry was some other researcher, who supposedly had documents never seen before by anyone, but totally confirming the developer's story, localized entirely within his kitchen. May we see it? No. Now, that situation has been resolved, and at the moment the article does show the date better supported by actual evidence as opposed to one dude's memory. But how many other situations like it are there? I don't know. Whenever you look at a wiki entry, it may be temporarily vandalized as a prank or as a means of promotion. Someone could be expecting people to search for the subject and try and direct them to a website or a brand or a product. Or an entry could be... Permanently vandalized, moderated by an idiot with a specific version of events, editing away all dissent, because their entire identity is built upon being right on the internet about an infinitely specific thing. To sum up, you see articles from researchers who always want to learn more, and from those who always want to be right. You find accounts of the events by people who were in the thick of it, but can't remember everything, or don't want to tell everything. The press provides a paper trail of colourful reports with pictures and ads, but that's mostly outside a perspective and marketing. From the inside, you do see industry documents, and sometimes companies get sued and have to bring all kinds of paperwork to court, but in a fast world of video game industry, not everything got written down. And you could try to analyse a game's code to uncover all of its secrets, apart from a few really important ones, like why it was made, and why this way in particular. And then you get Wikipedia, combining the worst of every single source. That's how our knowledge of this very recent period, less than half a century ago, with many, but fewer and fewer active participants alive, still has blank spots. Naturally, it's not as bad as ancient history, and we do have a decent understanding of some major events that rocked game companies, But, as I keep realising over and over again, and will demonstrate, the big overhyped video game industry is not the origin point of ideas, but rather their final destination. If you want to find out who actually came up with some of the most exciting new mechanisms and concepts, you'll have more luck asking users of long-forgotten mainframes, exploring non-commercial games or even browsing tabletop wargame designer notes. So, while Season 2 will deal with industry drama, because that's where all the money is, those probably won't be the episodes that will make you go, they already had that in the 70s? I'm not sure, though. We're supposed to use the empirical method here, so the only true way to find it out is to start the next season, coming mid-January. This has been all of Season 1 of Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, and for donating.